Welcome to the Park Church Sermon Podcast. This is the audio portion of our weekly sermon. For more resources, check the show notes or visit www.parkchurchdsm.com. We'd also like to invite you to check out our weekly podcast, Inside the Park, where we take Sunday to the weekday. Available everywhere you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be there and into chapter 3 this morning as we continue in our series on church leadership. 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you or you're not familiar with the Bible, it's towards the back of the Bible. If you start in the back, you can go there and uh, kind of make your way forward. You can do a Google search and it'll pop up there. Or if you have the Version app, which is many of you, you can type in that, that uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And then I'm using the Christian Standard Bible. It's a CSB if you want to have the exact uh, version that I'm reading in today. It's good to see you guys. I love Sunday mornings. Great to be with you. I'm delighted to be able to uh, share with you this morning. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on it. God, thank you for this space that we can gather to say that Jesus is king and sing the gospel together. God, I pray you bless us and that your spirit would change us through your word today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I was leading a missions trip a few years back in the country of Uganda, and it was extraordinary. And I remember there was one time where we were meeting at this school, and there was a bunch of kids that wanted us to join in their game. And this game looked a little bit like basketball crossed with ultimate frisbee, except not. It was one of the most confusing games I'd ever seen, and they asked me to join in. And I didn't know any of the rules, so I just thought, well, I'll just get after it, and they'll appreciate my uh, spirit and the American way of just going with it, right? And it uh, turns out that they did not. And uh, as it went on, the, my team got more and more frustrated with my performance and a lack of understanding of this, this rules of the game they were playing. Until our team captain came over to me and put his hand on my shoulder and said, Pastor, why don't you just sit out for a while until you can figure this game out? I was like, oh, you didn't like my enthusiasm? No, all of us are really frustrated that you don't know how to play. Oh, when you don't follow the rules, when we try to design our own way, it actually causes frustration, even if we mean our best in it. Listen, we live in a world where we don't like to follow the set standards. We like to draw our own lines and our own boundaries, thinking that's going to make things better by doing things out of the design of how they're meant to be, but in reality, it just causes frustration for all. And where we're picking up in the book of 1 Timothy, it's actually the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they don't know exactly how they are supposed to work together as a church. What is supposed to be going on? How is this supposed to be led? What are we supposed to do? And they're just trying to figure it out And a lot of people are frustrated. They don't know what's going on. But God has a perfect plan for his 
church. He has it figured out. In fact, he's had it figured out from eternity past. And it's his plan that's for our good, for our unity, and for our health and our joy. So as we continue in this, we'll see this, that Paul, that Paul, the reason that he even wrote this letter in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15, this is what he says. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So there's the reason for this letter. Paul says, so you know how to act when you gather together in God's house. And here's what's at stake and why it's so important. Because which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation for truth. So we need to get this right. Paul is saying the way that you gather and what you do, it's important because first of all, it's God's church. And it's a pillar of truth in the world in a a society that lacks any kind of truth. He says this is really important that you guys know how how this works, how we relate to each other. And so we're at an exciting time. As we as a church move towards membership, as we move towards leaders, we want to follow God's standard, his way, the rules that he has set up for us. So we looked at last week at leadership, that leadership brings order, direction, and care. That God has designed his church to be led by godly leaders called elders or pastors. Here's just a little bit of a recap for you of what we looked at last week. We looked at what is a pastor. This is three interchangeable words that describe the same role. The first one is this, a pastor is mature. That's where we get the word elder from. Not only is he mature in age, but he's mature in his conduct and his maturity in Christ. Secondly, we get the word bishop, which means overseer in the scripture, which also means elder and pastor. And then we see that a pastor is a pace setter. He and his team leads the direction and plan for the church and leads the ministries of the church with the direction. Now, some people think that pastors are supposed to do everything, but that's actually the opposite of what God's design is. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that pastors are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So pastors set the pace, where the direction is, how they're going to get there, and then equip the members of the church to carry out what God has called us to do. We also saw that pastor, where we get the word shepherd, or shepherd, where we get the word pastor, that's what a pastor is. A pastor smells like sheep. He's not just a decision maker, but he's a disciple maker in and among his flock, is accessible to the people, and lives among them because lastly we see he's one of the sheep. The pastor sets the example, but he's not perfect. And he needs to be shepherded as well by others in the church and, other, and by God himself. And I skipped one, that is a leader, a shepherd is on a team. A pastor is on a team. It's never meant to be one person leading the church on its own, but a group of people setting the pace, shepherding, and leading people to the direction that God desires under the good shepherd, our senior pastor, Jesus Christ. This week, we're going to look at who is a pastor. And if you have a Bible in front of you, I'm going to start in verse 11 of chapter 2, and I'm going to go through chapter 3, verse 7. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. A woman is to learn quiet and full submission. I don't allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. 
For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with good sense. Chapter 3. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. The first thing I want you to see is this. An elder is a man. An elder is a man. Now, this is a heavy text to begin with this morning, right? You got that and you're like, whoa, where are we going today? I acknowledge the heaviness of this text. And by God's design, I want to just work through this together. And here's a couple of responses that I kind of feel I'm feeling out in this room right now. The first one is this, to an elder as a man, of course. That's what I've always known and what I've always taught and believed. The second one, I believe, is this. I've heard that but I'm still working through it. It doesn't sit well with me. And in fact, it's never sat well with me. The third one is this. I actually didn't know that, and I'm intrigued, and I want to hear more. And number four is this. I disagree. What kind of chauvinistic, bigoted church is this, and where's the nearest exit? Now, I understand that all of those are probably represented or maybe a mixture of those in some way in this room this morning. And I met with a guy in this church over lunch for several months, and we just worked the book of 1 Timothy together, trying to say, what is God's design for the church? And what one of the conclusions that we drew out was this, that God is really actually concerned about this. He really desires for leadership to be his design and not the way that we want them to be. And so our desire as a church and for this series is to be the most biblical church as possible. God has specifics for us. So we want to follow his leading. So listen, I want you to hang with me. If you're in one of those last ones and that just set you off and bristled you a little bit when you heard that, stick with me, please. We want to just work through this together and look at God's design. Well, verse 11 and 12, those passages that we just read from the Bible, it says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Here's why an elder or a pastor is to be a man, because the essence of an elder's job is to exercise authority and to teach. And if Paul is saying that a woman is not able to do that, just in the church, in this particular gathering and context, in the office of elder, then even though we bristle at that, and I do as well when I read it, right? Because if I was making it up, I wouldn't have this rule. But I'm not making it up. This is God's rule. It's his design. 
Now, a lot of people have tried to make sense of this. Well, what does Paul actually mean in here? And one of the things is, well, we have to look at this. This is written to a city in Ephesus. And if you know anything about Ephesus, one of the things that are brought up against this, that Paul is just talking to a specific time, a specific location, is that Ephesus was actually a feminist society. And it was overrun with feminism in this city. The culture here was out of control, and men had no authority at all. And so Paul is saying in this one context, this is what I desire. But if you study anything about the city of Ephesus, you know that it's a a Roman city, a traditional Greco-Roman city that is led by Roman government, which was all men. And actually, women in Ephesus had zero say in anything, and they were treated like property. And that's what Paul is actually saying here. He says, I want women to learn. I want women to be valued in the church, but we need to do so by God's design. And I want you to see here the verse that we read just a little bit ago in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Paul says, I'm writing so you know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God. He's not talking about just a specific context of Ephesus. He's actually talking about every church. This is how every church is to conduct itself when it gathers and as it assembles. So this is not just a specific church, but actually every church in the New Testament. But I think the next verse that follows, verse 13, is the best evidence that this is not a cultural verse. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Paul does not refer to something in the culture here. He actually goes back to creation order. He doesn't say, well, because this is happening in your city. No, he says, before sin entered the world, God's design was order in creation, and men were to be the head of the household. Now, this doesn't mean that men are better. Often, it just means that men are the first repenters. Just yesterday, uh, we had like a great Saturday morning, a disaster of a Saturday afternoon, and an okay Saturday night. You ever had one of those before? The disaster of the Saturday afternoon, where uh, I made some silly, stupid decisions, and my reaction was awful to them. And I came back home and thought, this is all my kids' fault. I mean, if my kids were just more respectful and more grateful, everything would be different. Right? Are you with me on that? You feel that before? But then I got sitting down and thinking for a little while, and the Holy Spirit started poking me on the chest and goes, who's the leader of this family? You are. It's not your kids. It's not that they're ungrateful. and Maybe they are. You can work, do some work in that kids you're listening right now. But... It's really you. You didn't set them up. You didn't lead terribly. And your reaction was awful. So we gathered for supper that night, sat down before we ate, before I prayed. And I said, kids, I got to apologize. I need to ask for forgiveness. I tried to blame it on you. And really, it was me. It was my fault. So to be head of the household doesn't mean that the dad is actually better or that he's more mature It just often means that he should be the first one to repent when he's wrong. And in that way, he leads. But this is God's design. Because the church is spoken of in family language. We're adopted by God the Father through the Son. We are brothers and sisters together. And so the same way that God's household is led in the home, he desires his family in the church to be led the same way. 
Now, this is a theological position that's called complementarian. And it goes along with our statement of faith. And I want to just read that to you. It just says this. In God's wise, in God's wise purposes, men and women are not simply interchangeable. But rather, they complement each other in mutual, enriching ways. That's what the word complementarian means. It means that we're different, but we complement each other and we fill in each other's gaps. So here's what I want to tell you what is true about this. The office of elder pastor is the only position that a woman can't hold in this church. Both men and women are to be ministers. Oh, man, we need some godly women ministers in this church. I cannot tell you how much I have benefited from godly women in my life. Godly teachers now, some of my favorite theologians that I think do a great job of just teaching the Bible outside of the church are women. And I have been shaped and formed by their understanding of God and who he is. And we need women in this church who are theologians that love the word of God and love his church. That are involved. We need each other. If this church was a bunch of dudes, we'd be in trouble. All right? We need each other. And we need to complement each other where we need it. At the end of uh, this series in two weeks, not next week, but the following week, we're going to have a Q&A. I'll be up here with Trent and some others, and I want to just give you an opportunity to ask questions about what you've heard. Open and honest, and we'll do our best to answer them biblically. So if you have some of those, get them to us, and of course, I'd love to always talk to you in person as well. But God's plan is for an elder to be a man, but not just to be a man. That does not qualify you to be a pastor in any church. But you need to be a godly man. And we need godly men. So who is a pastor? He's a man, but he's not just a man. He's a qualified man. God cares more about the character of the pastor than his gifting. If you look at the political realm around us, usually it's the other way around, isn't it? The guy that gets things done or the guy that makes a lot of promises of getting things done and has a great track record of success. Character is secondary. In the church of God, that's not how it works. Character always goes before giftedness. You might be the most gifted man in this room in the city of Des Moines, but if you don't have a character of what God requires here, you have no business being a pastor. Verse 2 says this of chapter 3. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. Above reproach, this is really the synopsis of this whole section on the requirements for a pastor. And it really means this, that no one can bring a charge against the pastor. It, it's like if, if the pastor falls, everyone is shocked, right? They're like, we never expected that. We didn't put him up thinking that that would ever happen. And that's why when a pastor does fall, everyone is shocked and hurt because a pastor is meant to be above reproach. That's his calling. That's where it begins, and so, yes, there should be a little shock and awe when that happens. He is a man. He's just like everyone else. But he should be meeting the qualifications of a pastor. But really, above reproach is the synopsis or the, so the summary of the list that is to follow. 
It says, secondly, that he is to be the husband of one wife. That literally means a one-woman man. The pastor should be faithful. The pastor should not be a flirt. He should honor and take care of his wife. If a pastor doesn't know how to treat his bride, he has no business treating and leading the bride of Christ. God cares so much for how a pastor treats his wife. Now, that doesn't mean that a pastor has to be married. It's just saying if he is, that he needs to only have one wife and be a one-woman man. If it meant that a pastor had to be married, then Jesus would not qualify to be an elder in this church. And neither would Paul, the guy who wrote this. But if he isn't married, he also needs to be pure and growing in holiness, just like a married man needs to. It needs to be very evident who the pastor's wife is. And he's supposed to be self-controlled is the next one there. Not a man who's out of control, but a man who lives under the control of the Spirit. He's to be sensible and respectable. He's to be a guy that thinks well. He thinks biblically, and people should also think well of him. So it's a matter of how he thinks and how people view him. The pastor is also to be hospitable. That is, he lives a life that is welcoming to others. That he's approachable, that he's real, that you can relate to him. And that he also welcomes people into his home and shows hospitality. Not just people who are like him, but people from all different backgrounds and wherever they're coming from to come into his home and be welcomed into his family. He's not to be an excessive drinker. That's an obvious one. The pastor should not be a drunk. He's not a bully, but gentle, and he's not a fighter. Now, this all has to do in the way the pastor carries himself and when he leads. You can sum it up and say, a pastor is meant to lead like Jesus with great power, with great authority, but to be kind, to be loving, to be caring. A pastor has to make hard decisions. Not everybody likes those decisions but they should be done in a gentle and loving way. He knows how to manage his household. This goes along with the husband of one wife. For if a husband, does, if he doesn't know how to manage his own house, he doesn't, shouldn't manage the church. He should have a management ability. And it should start with his own house. He shouldn't be a new convert. That goes along with being an elder. An elder meaning he's older in age. Well, he should be older in the faith. We don't want to rush someone into a role that they're not ready for. That's foolishness. We want to be wise. And the last one is he has a good reputation with outsiders. That means that people who don't know Jesus should like him. Isn't that interesting that Paul puts that in there? He should actually, first of all, know people who don't know Jesus. He should have relationships with people who don't know Christ. And the people that he does know that don't know Jesus should appreciate him. They might not agree with him. He still speaks truth to them. But they should enjoy being around him. He's not a weirdo. He's not different. He's weird. Now, some of you are looking at me going, I don't know, man. Right? He's not a weirdo, but he's well thought of in the community and by people who don't know Jesus. Now, I want to give a warning to you when you read this. Here's the warning. Some of you are looking at this list right now and thinking, that's a list for super Christians. Right? You look at that and go, if I ever aspire to that, then I'll become that type of person. That's 
incorrect thinking. What I love about this list is that it's not showing us that a pastor is a next level Christian. It's that a pastor is just a mature Christian. So this list is not only a list for pastors, but should be the list that every Christian, every believer is aspiring to live up to. All these things are really just walking by the Spirit. That's what this list is. If you notice, only one of them is a giftedness, and the rest are just all about Christian character. So I want you to think, I don't want you to think that, oh, pastors are next level Christians. We're not. We have no business being a pastor if we're not mature in Christ. But this is the same, this is the same list that all of us should be striving for. And listen, it's attainable for you. And many of you are here. And you see, you would need to be leading. Because this is who you are, and you've worked hard in the power of the Spirit to do these things. So don't look at pastors as this next-level Christians, but simply mature Christians that God has called to lead. There's one on, one on this list here that is not a character trait, though, and it's able to teach. I skipped over that one. We go back to that one. This is what it is. Who is a pastor? He's a teaching man. He's a teaching Man, to teach means to be gifted in taking the deep truths of God and letting them lay bare in a simple way so that people can understand them. That's ultimately the essence of teaching because if you've ever read the Bible, there's some deep things in there, aren't there? There's some heavy stuff and you're like, what? Right? You learn and you're like, what does that mean? A teacher is one that says, this is a deep truth and let me help you understand it in a simple way. And so when it says he's able to teach, it is not that the pastor shows everyone how smart he is or how much he knows, but he feeds the people of God so they can grow in grace and knowledge and apply it to their lives to be more like Jesus. You could say it another way that a pastor's job is to serve up the goods. That's what he does. He lays a beautiful meal out on the table for the sheep to be able to eat, digest, to swallow, and then apply. And it is a labor. I haven't yet had a Sunday, and I know it's short-lived, where I've stepped into this pulpit and felt unprepared. My goal is to never feel that way. Despite the busyness of the week, I make time, and anyone who's up here makes time to Give serious labor and work to understanding the word of God and then delivering it to the people. That's one of the pastor's primary jobs is he is to be a teacher and this should not be taken lightly. Paul in 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 and 2, I love this text. This is what it says. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Who is the judge of the living and the dead. Because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. He says, preach the word in season and out of season. When you feel like it and when you don't. And there's some Sundays that I don't feel like preaching, but you preach anyway. And you're supposed to do it to correct, to say the word of God says your thinking is wrong. It needs to be changed. To rebuke and say the way that you're living right now is wrong and it needs to change. To encourage. 
Listen, you're struggling right now. Be encouraged with the truth of God that he has not left you. And to have great patience. Because how often do you need to hear the same thing over and over and over again before it actually sets in, right? That's the pastor's job. And it doesn't mean that every elder has to be able to preach. But they need to be able to handle the word of God and do those things with someone. One of the things when I think about rebuking and correcting, I was a youth pastor and I walked into this small group and one of the guys, I heard him talking with these high school boys and he goes, isn't it amazing that Jesus gave up being God to come to earth? And I was like, oh, whoa, 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 right? I'm like, hold on a second. If you don't know, that's not what Jesus did, okay? He did not give up his deity. He added humanity to his deity. But it's one of those things as a pastor because oftentimes there's wrong teaching in the church. And the job of the pastor is to come in and say sometimes very harshly, that's wrong and it will not be here. And other times misguided like this teacher said, I don't think Nate actually means that. What he meant to say was this. And he's like, oh, yeah, that is what I mean. Thank you for correcting on that, right? Gave me a wink and I was on my way. <laughs> a pastor is qualified. He's a teaching man. Let's look at one last one together. For that, we go back to chapter 1. So flip over to chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. I want you to just hear this because this is just a glorious text as we make our way to the Lord's table. It says this, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he has considered me faithful, appointing me to ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full accept acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. And I am the worst of them. Amen. But I have received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who, who have believed in him for eternal life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory, honor, forever and ever. Amen. Woo! Come on now. The last one is this. A pastor is to be a gospel man. A gospel man that he loves the good news of Jesus. He is very aware of who he once was and who in many ways he still is. And that his identity is not wrapped up in being a pastor. But his identity is wrapped up in who God says he is and who he is in Christ. That although he is a sinner, he is simultaneously righteous in Jesus. And when God looks at him, he doesn't see a sinful pastor covered in dung. He sees a pastor clothed in the righteousness of Christ because he's received Christ through faith. And that's where his identity is found. When it's hard, when it's difficult, a pastor is a gospel man. And he gives the goods of the gospel every time he meets with his people. I love that verse that said, his grace overflowed for me. In my mind, I picture it overflow. Have you been to the water park to like the kids area and you've seen that dumping bucket? You know, where it slowly fills up and then the bell starts ringing and this huge bucket like dumps all over the kids. And they're just like, ah, 
now, right? And they love it, and they wait for it, and the bell rings, and they're jumping around, and they're so excited, and then they wait for the next one to dump. When Paul says God's grace overflowed for me, that's what you need to envision. That you've got this little cup at the bottom, and sometimes I think that we think when you do good work, you open up this little spigot, and little drops come into your cup, and gradually it fills up with God's grace by doing more and more. And the worse you do, you kind of dump it out a little bit. But Paul says, God's grace overflowed for me. It's a, you hold the cup up and God just unleashes the tidal wave of his grace on you. And it doesn't stop. It keeps on flowing over and over and over. God's grace has overflowed for us in my life and in your life. So if you don't know him, if you've never experienced God's grace, it's overflowing for you. It means there's plenty of it. You can't be too bad to earn, you can't ever earn God's grace to receive God's grace. You can never earn it because it's just this, you can never fill your own cup. God has to fill it for you. So once you trust that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose again, and that he offers you a relationship with him through grace alone. And so communion is a way that we keep ourselves gospel people. They're reminders to us when we take the Lord's table together. Now, I want to say this. If you don't know Jesus, that is, you don't have a relationship with him, you're still trying to figure it out, we're so glad you're here. We want you to keep coming, and we want to keep exploring that with you. But this isn't for you. This is for Christians. And what this means is we come together and participate with Jesus as we remember his body that was given for us. His body that was bruised, that was pierced, whose side was pierced, that was given on our behalf and hung on the tree. Our sins were placed on that perfect body of Christ. And then the blood is represented in the juice. Now, I don't want you to think that anything magical happens here. These are just, this is just juice and bread. And this is a remembrance that keeps us gospel people. Is to remember Christ's body and his shed blood on our behalf. So if you've never taken communion with us, if you're a Christian, that is that you've trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, in just a moment we'll invite you up here. I'll lead us out so you know when to go. Uh, it's a little confusing sometimes. But we'll walk up here and you'll grab one of these cups. In the bottom of it is actually a cracker. Take it back to the seat with you. Sit down. Contemplate. Think about. Pray. Open your Bible to Isaiah 53. Read the things that God has done for you. And then I'll call us all together and we'll take communion together. All right? Let's pray together. Father.